So there was, a, there was a season in my life probably, I don't know, four or five years ago where I got really into productivity journals. Um, so they'd have like these, these daily, these journals that had your whole day mapped out and you'd put your agenda on there and then you'd have three big tasks that you would do and then you'd have a, a daily review. Did you get your three big tasks done? And before you would set up your, your, your goals and get into this journal, you would set up annual goals. And you would try to break your annual goals down into quarterly goals, then into weekly goals, then into daily goals. And then so each day you're trying to take one step closer to achieving that goal. And so you'd have, at the end of the day, a review. Did you get your stuff done? And at the end of the week, there'd be a weekly review. At the end of the month, there'd be a monthly review. And a quarter, a quarterly review, you get the idea. And these productivity journals... Um, are still really popular. I still see all kinds of ads for them. I don't use them anymore today because it just became too overwhelming for me. Some of you guys might use them today and, and love them. And to be honest, I was really productive that year when I was using those journals. However, the simple act of looking back and reflecting was really helpful with those things. Because you could look back and you could just see, man, I, I got a lot done. I'm grateful that I got a lot done. There was a lot of wonderful things that happened. And, and Myself, personally, I still try to do a little bit of journaling because I recognize it as a good habit, but I was hyper-focused on it then. And today, when we look at the text today, we are seeing God putting Israel in a place of safety, and they are looking back and reviewing what God has done for them, and it gives them fresh perspective on God's work. Friends, I wonder, do you make it a practice to look back at what God has accomplished in your life. I mean, it's New Year's Eve. Is there a better, t better day in the year to look back and just see what God has done in your life just the past year? Well, as we look at the text, I hope that we see very clearly that reflecting on God's work leads us to praise Him and trust Him. Reflecting on God's work leads us to praise Him and trust Him. Now, we just wrapped up an Advent series, so we took a break from um, our march through Exodus, and we're now back in Exodus. And we are taking Exodus in, in chunks. So right now, we, this is going to be the last um, Exodus sermon for this particular chunk of Exodus, chapter 1 all the way through chapter 15, verse 21. And it, it's, it's fitting because we saw Israel in Egypt and they were under the oppression of the Egyptians. They called out to God, and God heard their cry after suffering for 400 years, and he sent Moses. And then Moses begins to lead Israel, and then one plague at a time, God just systematically destroys Egypt, and he delivers his people to safety. And now we come to the scene where Israel realizes that they are finally free. They have been asking God for hundreds of years to deliver them. And what may have felt like requests falling on deaf ears did not, in fact, fall on deaf ears. God was waiting for the precise time, the right time, to deliver them. God, in delivering them, was making himself known, not only to Israel, but also to Egypt and to the surrounding nations, as we'll see in the text. This is that kind of in-between spot where they've now been delivered from Egypt, they're out of Egypt, they've just come through the Red Sea, and now 
they are on the other side, and they're getting ready to go into the wilderness. And so this is, this is that kind of the concluding spot for those first 15 and a half chapters. And then, um, if you would, um, as, we, as we kind of look at this text, go ahead and turn your Bibles um, to Exodus 15. That's going to be on page 57, if you're using one of the blue-provided Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, just consider that blue one yours. Um, but we're going to be in Exodus 15, and I'm going to read those first 21 verses. And this text um, is, is split up pretty simply, in that the first 18 verses are a song. So if you're, if you're looking at your, your blanks there in your bulletin, the first section is just called The Song. So the first 18 verses. And then in verses 19 through 21, we see the result. So the song, and then the result. Let's read these 21 verses. This is God's word. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided, you've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse 
and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, give us great confidence in your works, your works past, present, and future. And God, please help us to be like your people who rejoice when we consider what you've done. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So that first 18 verses there, I said, is the song, which is pretty late. It's laid out pretty easily. I mean, it says that Moses and Israel sang this song, and then we read what the song is. But why do we see a song here? Why is there a song? It seems like a random kind of place to sing. Well, songs, friends, are just powerful memory devices. We have kids, and we're trying to help them remember things. Sometimes it's Bible verses. Sometimes it's other things. I mean, we remember the alphabets typically to a tune. The things that we remember are more easily remembered to a tune. It's much easier to remember song lyrics than it is random facts. And friends, that's part of the reason why we just sing when we gather together. I mean, we're commanded to in Scripture, but also we're just reflecting on what God has done, and we are responding with song. And oftentimes what you hear is that when people are sick in the hospital, what they want, what they end up remembering aren't the three points or the two points or the ten points of a sermon. But they remember songs. Songs like, it is well. When my dad was uh, dying from cancer, that song, it is well, was just on repeat. And that song, even when I hear it today, it brings me back to when I was going through that season of my life with my dad. And, and, and the Lord just showed himself to be faithful. Songs are powerful. We see songs throughout Scripture, so oftentimes uh, it's in a response to a significant event. So when Deborah and, and Barak, uh, when they had victory over Sisera and Jabin in Judges 5, we see a song. Uh, when Samuel is born in 1 Samuel 2, we see Hannah sing a song. We see David's song of deliverance in 2 Samuel 22. And we see Mary's response to the angels' news in Luke 1. She responds with a song. And so now, God had just delivered Israel out of Egypt, and he took them through the Red Sea and to a land completely and utterly free of oppression at this point. And so naturally, they sing a song. And in this song, the first three verses, we see a bit of a summary for the way the rest of the song is going to look. So look at me there. In verse 1, we see that God has triumphed gloriously. So they're recognizing that God is the one who has defeated the enemy. The song is directed to God because the victory is God's. Israel can take no credit for their salvation. As we just go through this thing, you're not going to see any part of this song where Israel is saying, and we walked so consistently. We had the right shoes to get through the dry ground. We brought our staffs, and they helped us not lose. No, none of it is directed to Israel. It's all directed to God, and rightfully so, because the victory is his. Verse 2, we see that God is Israel's strength and their song. He's the reason they have confidence or strength, and he's the focal point of their praise. He's their song. Later in verse 2, we see that God has become their salvation. He is the one who saves them. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other God, there is no other person who is able to deliver Israel. Salvation is found in no one else. He is their salvation. You see that he's also their father's God. Now this is some covenantal language. 
where they're being reminded that you made a promise to our fathers to make us a, a, a numerous people and to provide land for us. And God is fulfilling that promise. But now notice something else about those first three verses. Notice how personal the song is. We see my strength, my song, my salvation, my God, my Father's God. One commentary put it this way. It says, what is noticeable is how theological and personal the praise is. There's theology and, and it's personal. How theological and personal this praise is. Glorious theology is here. God's covenant, God's character, God's name, God's work, God's purpose. And yet, how personal. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Commentary goes on and says, At its best, all of our praise contains such rich theology made personal. This rich theology that we see in these first 21 verses of Exodus 15 have become intensely personal for Israel. And friends, we want to be theologically rich. That's one of our values. We want to be a theologically rich people. But being theologically rich isn't just about having knowledge. It can't just be a, a knowledge game. We want to be theologically rich not theological snobs. There is a difference. There is, friends, a knowledge that puffs up. You see that in 1 Corinthians 8. So the natural question is, how do I know if that's me? How do I know if, I'm, if that knowledge that puffs up, as I grow in knowledge, how do I know if, if that's me? Well, what I will frequently tell people is, is, does your increased knowledge lead you to increased godliness? Does your increased knowledge lead you to increased godliness? What does increased godliness look like? Well, I think, I think you can point to several places, but an easy place to point is just the fruit of the Spirit. So as you grow in your knowledge, are you becoming more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient with those who may disagree with you? Are you becoming more kind, good, faithful? Are you becoming more gentle? Do you have greater self-control after learning these things about God than when you did previously? Friends, to genuinely know theology is for that theology to become intensely personal, which means it affects our actions. The Puritans have said that you don't truly know something unless it impacts the way that you live. You can know about things, but you don't truly know them. Knowing about God is different than actually knowing God. To use an example, I can know about George Washington. But I didn't actually know. I don't actually know George Washington. And the thing that Israel was finding out about God, the thing that they were realizing, the thing that they knew that became intensely personal to them is something that we see in verse 3. That the Lord is a man of war. Seems like a strange thing to say. The Lord is a man of war? Does that mean that God delights in war and bloodshed? Rob, how does that, how does that work when Jesus, the God-man, is called the Prince of Peace? How can God be man of war and Prince of Peace? 
well, maybe, maybe he was a man of war in the Old Testament, and then he kind of had a change of heart, became friendly, peaceful Jesus uh, in the New Testament. That's oftentimes what people will, will say, that God was, was wrathful and mean in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, he, he's more patient. No, I don't think it's that. The phrase man of war means that there is no one more skilled and no one more successful in warfare than God. Nobody. And his matchless power ensures that he will overcome any foe. So no enemy can overcome God. He is matchless in power. He's a man of war. His all-encompassing knowledge protects him from any surprises. No one can do a sneak attack on God. And his infinite wisdom knows exactly how to take down every enemy. He knows exactly how to remove his enemies. Friends, could you just imagine if you had the leaders of the nations of the world and you told them that you can have matchless power, you can have all-encompassing knowledge, and you can have infinite wisdom, what, would, what do you think they would pay for those three things? It would immediately secure them as the, as the world power. They would have had no competition. The amount that they would, would pay for something like that is unbelievable. Yet these things only reside with God. And God, being a man of war, deploys these abilities for the sake of his people, to secure peace for his people. So yes, he is a man of war and he is the prince of peace. He uses the abilities that he has to overcome any foe and he uses them to secure peace for his people. And as the song continues, we'll see that God did that very thing. He did that in the past, he's doing it presently, and he'll do it in the future. And so we see those three kind of subsections. So under the first section, we're going to spend the majority of our time, just, just put out there, the majority of our time in those first 18 verses. And then we'll touch briefly on those last three verses, verses 19 through 21. So under the first 18 verses, there are three subsections. The first is past. You can probably guess what the second and third are, present and future. But the first is past. Now in these verses, verses 4 through 13, we see Israel just recollecting and just being reminded of what it is that God has done on their behalf. They just look to the past and say, this is what you've done. And there are at least five things I want us to notice here. You can notice more, but there's at least five that I want us to see. So in verse 4, we see that God sent Pharaoh's chariots, his host or his army, and his officers into the sea. And so the first thing that we see is that the Lord destroys the enemy. The Lord destroys the enemy. And it's not just that he sends the instruments of war, so the chariots, but he also sends those wielding those instruments, the host, the officers, which is why in verse 6 we read that he shatters the enemy. In verse 7, he consumes them like stubble. There's nothing remaining. It's not that he took out the majority of Pharaoh and his horsemen who were coming after Israel, and then Pharaoh and his horsemen realized, okay, that's enough, we're going to back off. He utterly destroyed them. He shattered them. He consumed them like stubble. The second thing, so the first one is the Lord destroys the enemy. The second one is the Lord thwarts the plans of the enemy. See that in verses 9 and 10. Look at verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Then we see what God does in verse 10. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. 
they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Egypt had a plan. They anticipated overwhelming Israel and bringing them back. God thwarted that plan. So we see first that the Lord destroys the enemy. Second, the Lord thwarts the plans of the enemy. The third thing that we see that God has done in the past is that the Lord shows that there is none like him. Again, the whole theme of Exodus is God making himself known. And we get to see a little bit more and a little bit more, a little bit more of who God is and what he's like. We see here that he's a man of war. We previously didn't see that about God. He's making himself known. And now we see in verse 11 that there is none like him. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Egypt worshipped hundreds, potentially thousands of gods. And none of them could protect them from Yahweh. None of them could protect them from the Lord. And so when the Israelites look up and say, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? It's not giving any justification to there being actual other gods. It's saying Egypt had all of these gods and none of them, none of them stood a chance against our God. The fourth thing, the Lord is a redeemer. See that verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. He has purchased a people for himself. And we'll touch on that more here in a bit. But before that, let's go to the fifth thing. The fifth is that the Lord leads and guides his redeemed people. You see that also in verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love. You have guided them by your strength. So again, those five things that we see in the past that the Lord has done is that he destroys the enemy. He thwarts the plan of the enemy. He shows that there is none like him. He is a redeemer, and he leads and guides his redeemed people. So these five things are a brief summary of God's past work. His past work for Israel in freeing them from Egypt. But now, at at this present moment in the story, Israel is recognizing, yes, you've done all these things in the past, but now there's this present moment where they're in a new land, and there are now other nations to be concerned about. And we see that God is presently working on behalf of his people. Look at me in verse 14. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. And so, yes. God was making his name known to Israel and to Egypt. He did that in miraculous, incredible ways. The text says that he did wonders. He did awesome deeds. But he's also, in doing that for Israel and in revealing himself to Israel and Egypt, he's also revealing himself and making himself known to the nations around. The surrounding people are terrified. They've watched what's going on. And Egypt being the world power has now been brought to its knees and its king is dead. The gods of Egypt stood no chance. The king of Egypt, who thought himself to be a god, is now gone. And the people who who are in the surrounding areas are absolutely terrified. I mean, just just the, the, 
ways that they're described here, they tremble. Pangs have seized them. They're dismayed. Trembling seizes them. They've melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. They are still as a stone. Now, why do they do this? Why, why do they feel this way? Well, it's because God protects the ones whom he has purchased. The ones he's redeemed. Which means, friends, that he will deliver them safely to the land he's promised. He will keep his word to bring them to the place where he said he would bring them. Even if they lose battles along the way, which we see Israel goes astray and God disciplines them for that throughout the book of Exodus and the rest of the Old Testament. We see that. But even though they may lose battles along the way, they will not lose the war because God ensures their ultimate success. Why? Because they are his possession. He has bought them. He's purchased them. See that in verse 16. And friends, there is no way, zero chance, that anyone is going to successfully steal from God. If we are his possession, no one is going to steal us away from him. You have a better chance of stealing all the gold in Fort Knox than you do of stealing just one Christian away from God. Jesus says so in John 10. In John 10, verse 28, starting there, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So we see Jesus is holding, is holding his people. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So see, the Father is holding his people. I and the Father are one. And so if Jesus and the Father are holding his people, there is zero chance that anyone is going to take any Christian out of the hand of God. If you are a Christian, you can have great confidence that you are secure in Christ. You are not secure in yourself. Do not look to yourself. If you want to be secure about your standing with God, do not look to yourself. Look to Christ. Consistently look to Christ and what He has done. Your eternal well-being, Christian, is sure in the Savior. You're being held not by your own ability, but by the unwavering grip of God. Which means, not only can you trust God with the past, the present, but you can also trust Him with the future. And so by looking backward, looking to the past, Israel was reminded that God totally conquered their enemy. He shattered them. He consumed them like stubble. None remained. By looking around at the present, they see God protecting them from surrounding peoples, some pr- from present trouble. And by looking ahead to the future, they see God's promise to bring them into his eternal dwelling place. Look at verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. 
And so God wasn't just delivering them out of slavery from the Egyptians. He was then bringing them out of slavery and, bringing, and delivering them to himself. They were in Egypt, and he was bringing them to his abode, to his mountain, to his sanctuary, to where he dwells. He did this through Moses, which, if you remember, Moses' name in Hebrew sounds like to draw out. Because we read in Exodus 2.10, when the child, Moses, grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. And so just as Moses was drawn out of the Nile River, just as he was drawn out of the water to safety, God uses Moses, whose name means to draw out, he uses this man to draw his people out. He brings him out of the water, out of the Red Sea, to safety. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just deliver them to safety. Like, that would be a glorious thing in and of itself, right? The fact that he brought them out of slavery, and he brings them to safety, and then he said, okay, now you're on your own. I did you a huge favor, and so now for the next centuries, thousands of years, just, just serve me. But he doesn't stop there. He then continues on to lead them and to guide them, and he's bringing Israel to his own mountain. And friends, as you just read the Bible, you're going to find out that, that mountains are significant. Some significant events happen around mountains. So we see the mountains of Ararat, which is where Noah's ark rested after the flood. Mount Moriah, where Abraham took up Isaac to sacrifice him. Then God provided a lamb to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. With Mount Sinai, which we'll read about later in Exodus, Moses received the Ten Commandments. Jerusalem is oftentimes referred to as Mount Zion. Jesus is one of his most famous sermons, if not the most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was revealed, his glory was revealed to some of his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he was crucified on Golgotha, which is also called Mount Calvary. Mountains are significant places. And, and this mountain that God mentions here is also called his abode or the sanctuary which his hands have established. And it's where he will reign forever and ever. So look, Pharaoh's reign has just come to a swift end. He was, he was swallowed in the Red Sea. There's no question that Pharaoh's reign is done. And then we see Israel saying, the Lord will reign forever and ever. The Lord has made it clear that he alone reigns. And so whether it's past, present, or future, God is always working to draw his people closer to himself, to draw them out of whatever he needs to draw them out of, to draw them in to himself. So friends, is it at all possible, as we sit here this morning, as we reflect on 2023, as we head into 2024, is it at all possible that God may be drawing you out of something to draw you closer to himself? Perhaps he's drawing you out of sin or a sinful lifestyle or a sinful relationship. Perhaps he's drawing you out of a great job or he's drawing you out of security. He's bringing you out of security so that you may, may depend on him more. Perhaps he's drawing you out of health. 
we are grateful for health, but sometimes God uses sickness and disease to draw us closer to Him. Perhaps He's drawing you out of a town. You, 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 there are various different ways that we can recognize that God is bringing us out of something else to bring us closer to Him. But the reason we can have confidence that that's a good thing is only if we are calling on Christ. He is using all things for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. This promise is not for those who are rejecting Christ. So if you're here this morning and and you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. Really grateful that you are here. Hope you continue to come. And I I really do hope that you feel totally welcome to ask any questions. But with that said, this, this confidence that we can have going into the future that God will lead and God will guide is really only for those who are looking to Him to lead and to guide. It's only for His redeemed people. By sending His Son, God has provided a way for us to be free from sin. Just as Israel was in slavery to Egypt, we, friends, are in slavery to our sin. And just as Israel was brought to be, to be free from Egypt's slavery, God, through Christ, is bringing us from slavery to sin to be free in Christ. To be secure from our enemies, our great enemy, death. To have eternal peace. On the cross, Christ secured each of these things. He paid for the sins of all those who call on Him. He took on the wrath of the Father. He experienced the scorn of enemies. He died in our place. He did that for those who are His people. Those who call on the name of Christ. And now, as we see this song and the fact that God is a man of war and because He's a man of war... Uh, We can be confident that he's worked on our behalf in the past, he's working presently, and he will continue to lead and guide and direct in the future. Now we see the result that those truths have with Israel. So we see, starting in verse 19, that Miriam begins to teach the women. Now, Miriam was a prophetess, which means that she just proclaimed God's word to others. She was, she, I mean, she was with the sister of Aaron and Moses. And so when she heard God's word, she faithfully proclaimed it to others as well. And after Moses taught the song to Israel, we now see Miriam faithfully leading the women to sing it as well. It's like the closing scene of a movie where there's been all kinds of ups and downs, and then there's the scene at the end where everything seems right with the world. The enemy's been defeated, we're secure, everyone's happy, singing, dancing. And it's like the camera's just panning back as we kind of fade into uh, the back of that scene. The movie ends with a, a joyful conclusion. Now, this isn't the end of the story. It's the end of this section of Exodus. But it is a comforting thing to see God's people reflecting on what he has done and responding, the result, responding with them having great confidence that he will continue to lead and direct them. And we see Miriam, so we see Moses leading the nation, and we see Miriam leading the women to do this as well. We see in verse 20, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. 
the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea, which sounds familiar because we just read it in verse 1. It's the first verse of that song. It doesn't mean that they only sang the first verse. We're told that they began to sing this, and that's an indication that they all sang the rest of the song as well. But Miriam is going out of her way to ensure that the women are discipled, and the women are hearing what God has done, and they are living faithfully in light of it. Women in the room, are you like Miriam? Do you take it upon yourself to help other women worship God? Are you prioritizing discipleship? Men in the room, are you providing your wife with the freedom to live like a Miriam? Men, I would encourage you, encourage your wife to meet with other women. That will be inconvenient for you if you have several kids at home and you need to find a way to feed them all and get them all to bed and get them up whatever time of day it is. It's going to be more difficult for you, but friends, it's worth it. Offer to watch the kids for a few hours so that your wife can get away, meet with other women, and be like Miriam. Friends, reflecting on God's work leads us to praise Him and to trust Him. Are you reflecting on what God has done on your behalf? Is that a habit? Maybe you do need a journal just to have an end-of-the-day review or end-of-the-week review, whatever you need to do. But make it a habit to reflect on what Christ has done. I, I've heard of people um, writing prayer requests down on one side of a journal and then leaving the other side blank. And so when, when God does, in fact, answer that prayer, they'll go back with maybe a red pen and, and say, answered on such and such date. It's just a way to reflect. Look back. Reflect on what God has done. Praise Him for what He has done. Trust Him with the future. Remember, Pharaoh, Pharaoh represented the seed of the serpent. In fact, on his, on his crown, we see a cobra figurine. And God used Moses to crush the head of this serpent, Pharaoh. But on a greater scale, God has used Jesus Christ once and for all to crush the head of the serpent, that great serpent, the one who brought sin into the world in the Garden of Eden. And he's used Christ to eradicate sin. We live in the in-between right now. The work is done. God is continuing to work on our behalf to bring about the conclusion. We live in the in-between, and there is sin there, but someday that sin is going to be completely eradicated. And it's not going to be because we have earned it. It's not going to be because we have fought hard enough. Yes, fight for, for righteousness. Fight for what's good. But friends, the one who deserves our praise for our victory is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has removed death's hold on us. He's replaced death with life. He's the one who destroys the serpent, who brought death into the world. And for that, God's people will be singing Moses' song of praise for all eternity. Do me a favor. In closing here, turn in your Bibles to Revelation. It's the last book in your Bible. Revelation chapter 15 is where we're looking. So we're just in Exodus 15, now go to Revelation 15. Once you get there, look at verse 2. We're going to start there. 
Revelation 15, verse 2. We read, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And hear this. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Friends, as we close this year, let's close with those words of praise that we see in Revelation 15, verse 3. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. As we look back on 2023, let's say great and amazing are your deeds, God. 2023 might not have been your most enjoyable year. There may have been difficult things, but we can still say with great confidence, great and amazing are your deeds if you are in Christ because he is using those difficulties, those trials to bring about a glorious future. So as we close the year, close with those words of praise, great and amazing are your deeds, but also let's begin the new year with those words of trust from the same verse that no matter what may come our way in in 2024, be it good, bad, challenging, wonderful, we can say just and true are your ways. O King of the nations. We can say, verse 3, from how deep the Father's love, I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. This whole song from Israel was not boasting in themselves. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for being a man of war. We thank you for using your devices to secure eternal peace for us. Thank you for doing that through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we do not deserve this great salvation, but we are grateful for it. Help us to reflect on what you have done for us this past year and help us to be able to say, great and amazing are your deeds. And help us, as we look to the new year, as we enter into that, be rooted on Christ and say just as boldly, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.